Do you think Neil Young is just trolling Leonard Skinner here? Is that the whole point of this yeah, song? Yeah, I think that's what's going on. This is hell. I could not think of a better band to troll than Leonard Skinner, and they're probably really easy to provoke. Manufacturing Descent since 1996. This is Hell. We stream live at 10 a.m. Chicago time, Monday through Wednesday, here at thisishell.com, and I'm our podcast shortly after at the same place. The world broadcast premiere of all four hours of every week's This Is Hell happens on Saturday mornings from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. This Is Hell also airs abbreviated versions weekly on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow. Idaho, twice every week on the Chicago South Side's Lumpen Radio, and thrice, yes, I said thrice weekly on the United Kingdom-based online radio outlet, Beware, which you can find at BewareTheRadio.com. So some of you may remember back in early February, before I became incredibly ill, when we were fortunate enough to have a discussion with Deanira Navarez Martinez, whose research focuses on the role of the state in homelessness and housing precarity and informality. Deanira was on the show to talk about her radical housing journal study, Homelessness in Southern California, street-level encounters with the state, and the structural violence of performative productivity. While commending those working to help the homeless on the street level, she also described how their work can become performative, that is, giving the appearance of fighting homelessness, but within a system that rewards what our guest today sees as L.A.'s homeless industrial complex, a complex that is not made to benefit the homeless in any way, but to give the appearance that something is being done about homelessness, that the city is being humane. This gives legal cover for the police to sweep in violently attacked homeless encampments, all while doing the bidding of real estate concerns who profit from interim housing for the homeless that is not only inadequate, but has been dubbed carceral housing by homeless activists who are refusing to be improperly housed by the state. In a few minutes, we'll continue our conversation on the unhoused when we speak with organizer and author Tracy Rosenthal, who wrote the New Republic article, Inside L.A.'s Homeless Industrial Complex, Just 7% of the People in Los Angeles's Echo Park Encampment Found Permanent Housing After It Was Cleared. Almost half are missing, seven are dead. That's not a failure of homelessness policy. It's an example of the system working exactly as intended. Tracy is a co-founder of the L.A. Tenants Union, which you can find out more about by going to latenantsunion.org. Follow L.A. Tenants Union on Twitter, at L.A. Tenants Union. Tracy's first book, Abolish Rent, written with Leonardo Vilches, is forthcoming from Verso Books, so go to verso.com to find out more about that. Follow Tracy on Twitter at two underscore evils. That's T-W-O underscore evils. Find out more about Tracy at TracyRosenthal.com. And I know you're probably thinking, I'm not in L.A. What do their homeless issues have to do with me? Well, 
what's happening in L.A. is what's happening across the United States. And if it's not already happening where you live, it will be soon. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, it's been about three months. How have you been? Hi, Chuck. I've been great. You're looking good. Yeah, thank you. I'm looking, uh, yes, better than I would have looked if I came here a couple of months ago. Anything new in your world at all? I've been screwing cat furniture into the walls. (laughs) I'm glad that you continued that with furniture into the walls so I knew exactly (laughs) what you were doing there. Why are you, so does everybody on our show have cats? How many cats do you have? It seems like a sort of a thing, cats and radio. I had two. All right. And uh, yeah, it gets, uh, gets it off the floor, more floor space, increase the cat's altitude, everybody wins. And you don't get, you're not stepping on cats. Exactly. Now, I hate to jinx myself again as apparently whenever I mention my health on air, something goes horribly wrong with me, or if something has already gone wrong with me, it gets even worse. So I was supposed to begin my first full week of, first of all, week back of shows earlier this week, my first full week since being hospitalized in early March. Unfortunately, my back went out this past weekend, and I was unable to sit up without being in excruciating pain for about 48 straight hours. So I want to thank Sebastian for covering for me, and I'm now hoping that next week will be my return to live shows all week long. In a schedule, uh, you know, uh, as uh, Memorial Day is Monday, we are doing all new shows next week on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of next week, live at 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com and podcast shortly after at the same place. Our weekly Patreon podcast exclusively subscribers will be on Friday of Memorial Day week, also uh, live at 10 a.m., but only at patreon.com slash thisishell, where it is also podcast shortly after. Then finally, after Memorial Day week, we are back to our regular Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, thisishell.com schedule with Patreon on Thursday. And if you thought that was annoyingly detailed and complicated, wait until you hear our upcoming calendar events at the end of today's show. So heads up on that. But more important than whatever the hell is wrong with me, Dan, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is what new pandemic is distracting you from the ongoing pandemic? Can you have just a personal pandemic of diseases running through your body? Sure seems like it. Because, yeah, I think that's what I got. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering or the face mask, the coffee mug, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive, the trucker's cap, the winter hat. You can see all of our merchandise right now at thisishell.com when you click on support where you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your amazing support. And thanks this week goes out to Alex B., who was very generous, incredibly generous, unbelievably generous in his support for This Is Hell while I was in the hospital. So thank you, Alex. It's truly appreciated. And when I found out about your support, it did give me a smile on my face for one of the few times when I was laying in a hospital bed wondering when the hell I'd be discharged. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner. 
following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Dan will be sharing some more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Tracy on the increasingly cruel and inhumane treatment of the unhoused in Los Angeles. Again, the question from hell is what new pandemic is distracting you from the ongoing pandemic? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Dan, I believe you have this week's hangover cure. I do. This week's hangover cure is Sunday brunch. Oh man, I kind of hate that hangover (laughs) cure. In 2012, the Gothamist ran an article headlined, yep, Brunch really was created to, cu- to cure hangovers. The Gothamist reports, Brunch was first coined by English writer Guy Berenger, who suggested a new meal served around noon that starts with tea or coffee, marmalade, and other breakfast fixtures before mov- moving on to heavier fare on Sundays to beat the old hangover blues. The Gothamist then quotes Berenger's 19... 19- or 1895 essay, Brunch, A Plea, Beringer wrote, instead of England's early Sunday dinner, a post-church ordeal of heavy meats and savory pies, why not a new meal served around noon that starts with tea or coffee, marmalade, and other breakfast fixtures before moving on to heavier fare? By eliminating the need to get up early on Sunday, brunch would make life brighter for Saturday night carousers. It would promote human happiness in other ways as well. Brunch is cheerful, sociable, and inciting. It is talk-compelling. It puts you in a good temper. It makes you satisfied with yourself and fellow human beings. And it sweeps away the worries and cobwebs of the week. (laughs) The Gothamist adds, the term brunch has a second origin in the U.S. Many credited it it to reporter Frank Ward O'Malley, who wrote for the New York newspaper The Sun from 1906 until 1919. It was reportedly based on the typical midday eating habits of a newspaper reporter. It seems O'Malley, whom H.L. Mencken called one of our best reporters, one of the best reporters America has ever known, had a reputation for phrase making with gems such as life is just one damned thing after another. (laughs) So he came up with that and brunch. (laughs) I've heard of that. (laughs) Brunch finally took off in America in the 1930s in Chicago, according to Evan Jones, author of American Food, The Gastronomic Story. So that makes this week's Hangover Cure brunch and possibly for the first time i'm questioning the judgment of h.l mencken although o'malley is correct life is just one damn thing after another as i'm learning with my health we received a lot of get well wishes from listeners over the past few months while i was hospitalized then recovering at home from what i hope is the most disgusting surgery i will ever experience in my lifetime Bryson sent us an email at chuckatthisishell.com suggesting an aloe vera drink to fix the digestive problems that landed me in the hospital and kept me off air for the last 10 or 11 weeks. Bryson writes that the aloe vera drink is wonderful for diverticulitis. I like how he pronounced spelled it diverticulitis, T-I-E-S. I wish you had tried it before surgery to, uh, it would it kept me out of the hospital for 11 years, says Bryson. Good luck on your recovery. I've listened to your show for many years and we'll be glad to have you back. Thanks, Bryson. And you are not the first listener who suggested aloe vera drink to address diverticulitis. My surgeon told me that of all Americans over 60 years of age, 70% will get diverticulitis to varying degrees. Some may have a single attack and never experience it again. Others will have an ongoing battle with diverticulitis without ever needing anything but a pharmaceutical remedy, while others will eventually need surgery, or idiots like me will put off the surgery for so long that they almost die from sepsis. 
but it gets worse. Medical experts still do not fully understand diverticulitis. In fact, the science is changing so often that the way it's dealt with today is nothing like the way it was dealt with only five or ten years ago. So you all got that to look forward to in your future. Of course, there is a preventative cure. Eat 35 grams of fiber every day, something my surgeon told me he tried, and he described it as freaking impossible. We will have more of your emails following our conversation with Tracy. Coming up, the uh, dangerous, inhumane, and cruel world of homelessness in Los Angeles. We will have more of your Question or your answers to this week's question from hell, which again is what new pandemic is distracting you from the ongoing pandemic. We'll also have this week in rotten history and, like I said, more of your emails. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus, this is hell in Los Angeles the pandemic gave the unhoused a bit of a respite from brutal police crackdowns, offering them a brief glimpse of freedom an opportunity to build community and find camaraderie amongst each other before the virus waned and the inevitable happened. The cruel, inhuman policy toward homelessness reared its ugly head again. But that fleeting view of freedom may have sparked a movement that finally challenges the increasingly violent state response to homelessness. Here to help us have a better understanding of the unhoused in Los Angeles and what they are facing and what the unhoused are facing likely across the United States. Organizer and author Tracy Rosenthal wrote the New Republic article, Inside L.A.'s Homeless Industrial Complex. Welcome to This Is Hell, Tracy. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me. Tracy is a co-founder of the L.A. Tenants Union. You can find out more about the L.A. Tenants Union at latenantsunion.org and follow them on Twitter at LA Tenants Union. Tracy's first book, Abolish Rent, written with Leonardo Vilches, is forthcoming from Verso Books, so look for that in the near future. And you can follow Tracy on Twitter at the word two underscore evils, two underscore evils, and find out more about Tracy at tracyrosenthal.com. So you start your article writing about Gustavo Atzoy, who emigrated from Guatemala to Los Angeles at 17, where he was held in immigrant detention for nearly three weeks. On his first day free, he explored Echo Park Lake, 16 acres of grass, paths, and palm trees, an expansive body of water, a pristine view of the downtown skyline. Nearly 40 years later, now a U.S. citizen, Atzoy found himself heading back to the park. But now, as you explain, he was homeless, and we'll get to the circumstances in a moment. You had, uh, by the time Adzoi arrived in June 2020, around 60 people had already established themselves as residents of the park, living in tents on the west side's grassy incline. The pandemic had prompted the CDC to issue an unprecedented recommendation, allow unhoused people to remain wherever they are without recurring move-along orders or police sweeps. Park residents enjoyed a rare taste of stability and the freedom that comes from being left alone. Are the, well, here in Chicago, let's start there. Here in Chicago, homeless encampments have been attacked of late. They've been lit on fire. Of course, this is not unique to Chicago. This is happening all across the United States, unfortunately. But is there any evidence, Tracy, that you found that the pandemic caused not only lenience by law enforcement, but potentially more aggressive and violent acts against the homeless 
by those who are not in law enforcement. Had, did violence just not from the cops, but just from the public increase during the pandemic? Yeah, that, that's a really great question. I mean, I can say that for sure, because of the CDC guidance, um, which is sort of unprecedented in the history of homeless management, that you would have a policy that allows unhoused people to remain where they are. And I guess I should say of encampments that, you know, many studies and many interviews and unhoused people themselves talk about their preference for living together in public space rather than being isolated in shelters. They talk about their preference for having access to public restrooms, to transportation, uh, to the harm reduction of having a community around you. So like, I think first, just to say that, you know, there are reasons why people want to live together in space. The encampments are there for a reason and they, um, you know, they serve the function of a community and a support network and providing people with home homes when they don't have an indoor place to live. Um, and so these refuges basically are um, in the context of in the context of cities that are being increasingly used for the accumulation of capital and not for you know places for people to live. Um, they're increasingly seen as um, and they're increasingly seen as, you know, uh, like an obstacle to that process. And they're associated, um, and they're associated with a lack of safety, even though that is unproven. And I, I actually don't know uh, for certain whether we've seen vigilante violence increase over the course of the pandemic, but there are studies that show that unhoused people are more often the victims rather than the perpetrators of violence. So this idea that un, like that having an encampment in your community makes your community less safe is actually pure fiction. That's like part of the rhetoric that is being used to purge unhoused people from space. Um, and um, but yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. Does that answer your question? Yeah, definitely. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned was is uh, public restrooms. Here in Chicago, they just announced that there's going to be a program for public restrooms. Whether those public restrooms are for the homeless or whether they're just trying to uh, provide a service for tourists downtown because they can't find a public restroom in a restaurant somewhere uh, for tourism rather than for the homeless. Uh, but how much do you think public restrooms is just the you know, band-aid du jour, that this is the liberal response to homelessness. How much do you think that really addresses a concern and how much do you think that that's just a band-aid? Well, I mean, I think that that, I mean, people, like humans deserve access to bathrooms. Um, all humans, it is a human need to have access to, um, you know, relieve yourself wherever you are. And what we've seen in Los Angeles and what does happen across the country is that bathrooms are weaponized by police efforts and politicians um, that, you know, there's this amazing report by um, LA Can, which is an organization of unhoused organizers and unhoused organizing in Los Angeles. And they have this report called The Dirty Divide. And they talk about the ways that the state purposely withdraws trash services and bathrooms in order to produce the 
in order to produce a public health crisis that then the state solves with sweeps. So I, I would say that, you know, this is one of the demands um, in, you know, there's a coalition in LA called Services Not Sweeps and access to restrooms are um, an immense part of that. Um, I think, however, we should be like very considerate about when these restrooms are deployed and when they're not. Um, I mean, specifically in Los Angeles, the um, we have a park, Pershing Square, that in the design, like in the meeting minutes of its design, you can listen to politicians talk about removing bathrooms, how there would be no public bathrooms, and that people would have to use the semi-private spaces of, you know, nearby businesses, basically to prevent, like, as if that would prevent unhoused people from being in public space. And so um, I, my, my guess would be that public restrooms will be deployed as a way of managing where unhoused people can be. Um, however, I, I do think that, you know, like, people need access to bathrooms, they will use them wherever they are. And, and that is, um, it is a matter of human rights that we provide them for people who live outside. As for the reasons that Gustavo Atzoy, who you write about in your article, was returning to Echo Park, you explained he'd just been released after serving a year-long sentence in prison. He couldn't return to the home he'd once owned in, in Palmdale because he'd sold the deed to raise funds for a lawyer in his case. It was a hurried handshake deal, and the buyer had never fully paid him. Gripping his gold crucifix necklace, he got on his bicycle and rode to Echo Park Lake. He was, of course, afraid. He'd never been homeless before. So the homeless, as you know, are often blamed for their own situation, that they made decisions or choices leading to homelessness. When it comes to a situation like that of Gustavo Azoy's with legal costs, incarceration, and what Atsoy sees as being ripped off, in your opinion, who or what should be held responsible? Or, or Tracy, is a question of responsibility? Is that framework a distraction from a bigger conversation when it comes to homelessness? I mean, I think I would argue that homelessness is caused by systems of housing deprivation. Uh, and those systems include the the our system of allocation, which turns housing into a product um, and and is used to produce profit for a smaller and smaller class of people. And another system of housing deprivation is government policy that aligns with real estate interests, purposefully unhouses people um, and I, and and that those really are the systems that we should be pointing to and reflecting on the responsibility. I mean, I I think for me, like writing about uh, Gustavo, you know, who's been a friend for years now, um, that I found his story. Um, I mean, in a certain way, uh, Gustavo has been in every form of internment that the United States has invented to deal with, you know, undesirables and the poor. He's been in, um, he's been in immigrant detention, he's been imprisoned, and he has been in the shelter system or the interim housing system, all three of which uh, I'm sort of arguing in this piece are the, um, are the, are, are, 
are the are arms of the same system of of population control of containment. So to you, what explains why it's believed by the government, by the state, that police actions are a proper or effective response to homelessness? I mean, well, I mean, it's hard to say like what precisely the state believes. I mean, I think that homelessness does create a crisis for the state because it can neither the cap for the capitalist state, I should say, it can neither fully solve the problem because to fully solve the problem of homelessness would mean to provide well-resourced public housing for all that who needed it. And to do that would be to break the sort of bond between, you know, lack of housing and having to work or you're having to work in order to pay for shelter. And it would also sort of, um, and the way that housing is used as a disciplinary tool to force people into the wage is is sort of, you know, that's the classic Marxist theory of primitive accumulation. But I would argue that it's ongoing in our inability to provide public housing. Um, but that is like one. So the state fully can't solve the problem, but it also can't appear as if it's not trying. Right. Like it there the way that homelessness has been framed as a, you know, uh, I, I think over time it has had many sort of media rebrands um, from a sort of nuisance to a sort of misfortune to now I think we're in the sort of rise of the medicalized, um, maybe like the, the the medicalized deficiency or like these the pro like as if problems of mental health and addiction are the cause of homelessness even though we know that that is not the case that the majority of people who live outside are living outside because uh, they simply cannot afford rent um and so like it while it's true that we've gone through different phases of how we think and talk about homeless people, like the state has made different attempts over time to address this, like more or less successfully. Um, and, and I would argue that, you know, most recently um, in California, we've seen Gavin Newsom's attempt to uh, revive conservatorship laws, which basically allow them to jail an unhoused person against their will, make them into a ward of the state um, and submit them to forced treatment. Um, and, you know, all, all this using something that um, they're calling care courts, right? So in the, in, I think, you know, one of the things that we could talk about that I find so interesting is that most of these incredibly carceral and violent uh, responses to homelessness are happening within the context of liberal cities. So the liberal response is um, is services is the paternalism of services, uh, which are framed as on as for people's own good. Um, and I think that this has extended so far that um, you know conservativeship laws will li literally take somebody into custody for their own good. And there are many different kinds of schemes like this idea of service resistance that is like very popular in state rhetoric about the about um, unhoused people's relationship to going 
into shelters. And as if the, their resistance says more about you know, their mental health than the conditions of what's inside. So this kind of like medical turn is really being weaponized um, by liberal cities specifically to jail people for their own well-being. Um, and I'm also thinking here too of my friend Empty who lives outside who says, you know, like the, the services aren't for unhoused people. They're for housed people to feel like something is being done. Um, and that I think, I think their read is all had, had really shaped, you know, the way that I looked at all of these policies um, and, you know, thought about how this system, like, what if this system is simply its effects, not the PR of its effects, but its act, its literal effects? Yeah, I couldn't help but think about uh, the idea of uh, humanitarian militarism and uh, how that was such a focus back in the late 90s and how this seems to be another version of liberalism being applied to policing, a kind of humanitarian policing. But it both constitute force against those who you are trying to supposedly help, which seems very contradictory. And you write that the Los Angeles Police Department and representatives of the mayor, the city attorney, and the council uh, district all took meetings with the new coalition of nearby home and business owners in the Echo Park area called Friends of Echo Park Lake. Ayman Ahmed, who moved to the park in the fall of 2019, said at the meeting, detractors didn't see their, as Ahmed described it, common humanity with unhoused people or a kitchen for people who are trying to cook who have nowhere to cook. They saw, again, citing Ahmed, dirty people. They don't count the same as them making their areas dirty. So is there a common humanity between the home and business owners and the homeless? Uh, what do local home and business owners share with the homeless when it comes to any common humanity? Why is it so difficult to find that common humanity? Yeah, I should just say, like, just to back up a bit and give some more context, right? So I'm talking specifically about one spectacular sweep of a long-standing encampment in a park in Echo Park Lake. Um, it maybe grew to about 100 people at its height, um, and people had been living there since before the pandemic started, since the fall of 2019. Um, and the kind of political conflict that I think that it really showed is, um, I mean, I think really gets to your question, which is, you know, who the state is aligning with as a quote unquote stakeholder for the policies that they invent. Um, and who is sort of cast out um, as basically, uh, you know, not even and not even ignored, but is treated as a literal obstacle um, to the practices and the policies that are um, that benefit that benefit real estate and. Uh, homeowners and business owners. So I would say that, you know, this is an instance where um, homeowners and business owners have collaborated, um, that the state collaborates with them for the goal of raising property values, of bringing rich people to the area, of um, courting real estate investment, 
um, so that cities can grow, so that they can expand their tax bases. And this has made for um, an alliance of real estate and the state that um, I think Sam Stein very um, eloquently calls the real estate state. And um, I think what I'm trying, what I say there that, um, you know, the way that police, politicians um, from the mayor's office, from the city council's office, all they all took meetings with homeowners in the area. And the entire time, the community of unhoused residents at Echo, Echo Park had been requesting the same treatment and they were refused it. Um, so I think, you know, in the treatment of the unhoused, um, this, it, it's not only that the, it's not only that they are ignored, but that the state actively treats them as an impediment to the, to the goal of economic growth. And, and that that allegiance is, I think, also what draws in the police state, that in order to carry out the will of real estate and to protect investments, like protect speculative investments from risk, um, that the real estate state will draw in the police state to do that work. Um, and that I think is really shown in what becomes the spectacular eviction of this unhoused encampment at Echo Park Lake, um, you know, which cost the city $2 million, used 700 cops, arrested nearly 200 people. Um, and basically to, in the words of the homeowners, return the park, um, which had been uh, in their view taken over. Um, and this sort of, you know, I'm thinking here too of um, in Neil Smith's really famous The Urban Frontier, um, the last chapter is dedicated to this idea of revanchism, which is that sort of vicious and reactionary violence, basically, by which real estate homeowners, business owners um, will try to claim, reclaim the city. Um, and portray the poor as having, um, and portray the poor as having invaded the city that belongs to them. Um, and in this case, the state really mediates that conflict on the side of business owners, homeowners, real estate, and, and uses the police state to do that. And you cite Atzoi recalling in a UCLA report on the raid that eventually happens that uh, tears down the encampment that is in, at Echo Lake Park. Uh, you write that he states they were protesting so peacefully, the people who were protesting. And what did the police do? Sent their hundreds and hundreds in, arresting them, putting them in jail, shooting at them. You report... In the morning, the last of the residents, including Atzoi and Ahmed, awoke to find themselves completely fenced inside the park with a chain link enclosure. In an Instagram live stream, they compared their surroundings to an open air prison. After one last night, those who remained were threatened with arrest. Atzoi walked out, carrying what possessions he could. Ahmed was removed in handcuffs. In all, 182 people were arrested and 16 journalists detained. As you said, the entire operation cost $2 million. So what happened to the people who were homeless and living in that encampment? Were they you know, entered into the city's interim housing system, or did they simply find another place to sleep, but without the 
camaraderie and support and the support system that they were enjoying at Echo Lake Park. Yeah, so you can see, you know, as the piece go on goes on, I really talk about what happened, um, the record of what happened to people. And, you know, at first the, there is a city council member who refers to the eviction as the greatest housing event in the history of the city. Um, and he's citing this number from the Los Angeles Homelessness Authority, um, Homeless Services Authority, that uh, 180 people were moved into interim housing. But what we see over time is, is first of all, this simply isn't true for various reasons, but what we see over time is as time goes on, more and more people leave these placements they go back to the living outside. Um, some of them die at the year anniversary. Seven of the resident of the former residents of this encampment had died, um, and only seven percent. So something like thirteen people managed to get into permanent housing. So this process of um, you know these service offers that um, you know these offers of housing that were made to people. Um, that, you know, residents of the park recognized as the bait and switch to get them to leave, that is in fact the purpose that they served. Um, they got people out of the park. They were used to justify the use of the police in saying, you know, well, we offered everyone housing, but the result of that system was more instability for the people who entered it more a, a lot of people experienced the trauma of being evicted from that system they lost their autonomy within a system that denies you um that denies you uh denies you freedom of movement you're basically locked in for half the day um among other restrictions and um and I think that, you know, it's important, you know, when I'm saying that, like, they they compare their surroundings to an open air prison. I think for me, it's really important for us to understand that kind of like system of rightlessness that exists for the un unhoused people, both indoors, like when they enter an interim housing system and outside. So when they're outside, unhoused people are subject to a host of criminalization, which, you know, is basically a dance between constitutionality and criminalization that cities will simply legislate um, uh, inhumane laws that then have to be, you know, um, that have to be injuncted by the courts. But um, and then in and but and yet this system of rightlessness is produced outside and they're subject to an incredible amount of policing surveillance um and inst instability um and violence by the cops and then inside um the treatment is the same right that they are subjected to lack of autonomy they don't have the same rights as a tenant would have um they um they, they don't have tenant rights they're entered into these interim housing programs as participants in programs and rather than tenants um, they can't have guests, pets, or personal belongings more than uh, fit in one trash bag. Um, and I think that, you know, for me, really just showing that that system of rightlessness is, is total, that to be unhoused is to fall outside of 
rights as we as of human rights as we understand them. Do you think housing services need to be punitive to get any services for the homeless at all? Is that the political predicament we are in right now, that there may be those who want to genuinely help out the homeless, but the only way that you can get anything passed, the only way that politicians will allow for any kind of services for the homeless is to have a measure of uh, punitive punishment for those who are involved, who, who those who are homeless. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's an interesting question, right? And this really comes from like a history of how we deal with public benefits, right? Like it in term, I'm thinking here of um, the. Uh, and the production of this concept of like an undeserving poor. So most social services are made humiliating um, as a disciplinary tool. Um, and those things have been basically connected. You know, I, I mean, the first shelter system in Los Angeles was built in the city's jail. Like that is just the history of homeless management we have. But that um, that disciplinary apparatus being attached to public benefits that is broader i mean that's that is true of welfare um it's true of public housing it's true of um it's true of many public benefits as benefits had been sort of separated from entitlements uh, along the lines of racing class um and so i think that that is like the, your question is like uh, in in some ways that is it's a it's a question about, you know, the American, uh, the American system of social wage um, and how we imagine the social wage um, and what we think it should do or can do um, and like the ways that it has been, um, you know, weaponized and denied to people um, and used as a disciplinary tool um, for people failing to ad failing to succeed at a capitalist system that is that is for which it, in which it is impossible to succeed. Um, so I think that's one answer to the question. I think the other is to say, um, you know, like one of the things that I'm interested in is again, rather than asking like, uh, like rather than asking about the state's feelings, simply say like, what is it doing? Like these programs are, these carceral programs are so expensive. There's, you know, $70 million a year for encampment sweeps. The shelter, their shelter beds in Los Angeles are, I think the budget is $700 million. Um, the, I write about um, tiny homes and safe sleep sites, you know, tiny homes are, these prefabricated sheds that are sleep to people and are smaller than the American Corrections Association standards of a prison cell for one. Um, and safe sleep sites are basically tents that are fenced um, and subject to 24 hour surveillance. Um, and these, both of these programs cost $3,000 per person per month. So there is an immense amount of resources being devoted to the policing apparatus, which like takes 54% of LA's discretionary budget. It's about a third of the entire city's budget. And um, to these soft prisons, to interim housing, 
to um, containing people. And so I, I guess I would say that, um, you know, th this system has not been invented to help people. I do think that there are people working within this system. There are people within Lhasa who like, I cannot name their names because they um, would like to remain anonymous and they, you know, they work within the homeless services agency knowing all of these problems, but simply like do want to help people. This isn't to say that individuals, right? Like can't do not feel at, like that, that individuals um, can't make any kind of interventions or can't, um, or, you know, that every single person in this system is bent on the immiseration of unhoused people. However, it is to say that like the, our budget priorities um, and our, um, our budget priorities really betray the purpose of the program, which is the, which is clearance and containment. Because, as you point out, this is far more expensive to do this kind of policing strategy than it would be to actually address the concerns of the homeless. We are speaking with organizer and author Tracy Rosenthal, who wrote the New Republic article inside L.A.'s homeless industrial complex. Look for uh, Tracy's first book, Abolish Rent, which will be forthcoming from Verso. Tracy is a co-founder of the L.A. Tenants Union. You can find out more about that organization by going to latenantsunion.org or following them on Twitter at L.A. Tenants Union. And you can follow Tracy on Twitter at two, the word two, underscore evil, evils, sorry. Find out more about Tracy at Tracy Rosenthal. Dot com. And you write that former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, a proponent of broken windows policies, he said broken windows policies target, quote, problem people and problem places. And you explain academics George L. Kelling and James Q. Wilson argued that police should focus less on lowering the crime rate and more on producing a sense of safety by maintaining public order. Obstacles to that order, they wrote, were not violent people nor necessarily criminals, but disreputable or obstreperous or unpredictable people. The unhoused former New York City Police Commissioner William Bratton said in 2003 are the first signs of disorder. Quote, the homeless take over a portion of the park. Drug dealers follow. Drug dealers beget violence. It then begins to affect the whole business area and businesses begin to die. So a sense of safety, public order without businesses beginning to die is is broken windows about giving the appearance of safety more than providing security. And is broken windows for the homeless? I guess this is my more important question. Is broken windows for the homeless out of sight, out of mind? Is the police strategy and the state strategy about forcing the homeless to go unseen? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, th th that's a great question. And I think just, um, yeah, the reason why I, I'm talking about broken windows in this article is I'm saying I, I, I wanted to sort of figure out what is the policing strategy that is being used that puts unhoused people as basically, a, you know, a, like a canary in the coal mine of crime. Right. So you have William Bratton, who is the police chief who moves from New York to Los Angeles and back to New York um, as the proponent of this policy called broken windows, which we are still living with to this day. Um, and under this view of policing, um, 
it doesn't matter what the crime rate is. It matters if basically rich white residents feel safe. Um, and when we use policing to do that, right, we give an incredible amount of discretion to police officers and we're policing people and places as Bloomberg says, rather than like events. Um, and I think that, so it's really, I think it's really important to situate the rise in policing um, of unhoused people in this sort of broader project that cities are engaged in of broken windows of criminalizing the, of criminalizing the poor um and so um i'm i'm trying to remember the rest of your question um because i just oh yeah i i think so then in the context of um in the context of broken windows um cities are relying on police officers to produce this sense of this amorphous sense of safety, um, which is really a mitigation of risk for, you know, real estate investment. And I, and I refer in this piece to the police as the shock troops for investment. And I think that that sort of that that process is really clear um, within broken windows. And we also, we often talk about, you know, the racist legacy of broken windows. It is most certainly racist. Um, and there have been many studies that have showed, you know, the discretionary power allowed by police um, means that, you know, broken windows is a dragnet um, for black people people of and people of color but also and more maybe more specifically uh broken windows is classist and the un and unhoused people have always been a primary target of this policing strategy um and i think that um you know for all the and of course that um of course, it's important to remember, right, that those two things go hand in hand. In the Los Angeles, eight with something like eight percent of the population are black, and thirty percent of our unhoused population is black. So this sort of um, the imbrication of racism and classism in policing practices that make unhoused people the target is really clear from the beginning of Broken Windows ideology and remains to this day. And you point out that of the laws regarding uh, sitting, lying, or stand or eating in public, which have all been made illegal, as you point out, in the first 10 months of the Safer Cities policy, a new reform that the city of Los Angeles had come up with, the LAPD made 7,428 arrests and issued 10,342 citations in Skid Row, many for jaywalking. Oh, and uh, others for violations of the Section 41.18 of the law, uh, 1968 Municipal Code, that makes it a misdemeanor subject to fines or imprisonment to sit, lie, or sleep in a 
in or upon any street, sidewalk, or other public way. And you mentioned that uh, these are the kinds of, uh, you know, unconstitutional laws that are being enforced upon the homeless. You cite uh, Judge Kim McLean Wardlaw writing, because there is substantial and undisputed evidence that the number of homeless persons in Los Angeles far exceeds the number of available shelter beds, criminalizing the unavoidable act of sitting, lying, or sleeping at night while being involuntarily homeless constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. And you add in 2018, the Circuit Court's landmark Martin versus Boise uh, decision ruled that anti-camping ordinances in cities throughout the country were unenforceable on the same grounds. So why isn't the Constitution being upheld when it comes to cruel and inhumane punishment of the homeless? Can city governments and their police forces simply refuse to recognize certain constitutional rights that they don't want to recognize and have policies of breaking them when it comes to the homeless. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, basically, as I said, it is Los Angeles. The Los Angeles policing strategy and, the you know, um, legislative strategy is make the laws police the police unhoused people until you uh, are subject to a constitutional injunction. And that is how they... Um, that is how they invent and uh, that that's basically their strategy for dealing with unhoused people. Um, I think it's a little bit more, I mean, and there are so many ways in which laws that criminalize uh, being home, like the condition of being homeless are like run against the constitution. One is that, you know, they criminalize things that everyone does. Um, another is that, you know, you can't really have, you have a enshrined right to property. Um, and, you know, so the 4118 is the law that says you can't sleep in public, but yet you can't sit in public, but yet I can sit in public, but someone who maybe looks to a police officer as if they don't have another place to be, can't sit in public. Um, and then like 5611 was a law that was invented to basically be, empower the police to take unhoused people's belongings if they had so-called too much stuff, which was then ruled unconstitutional. Um, and now they've basically reinvented 4118 and said, oh, it's not a blanket for everyone. It's just at these specific areas, right? Um, so they're basically, you know, there, there are so many ways in which that the state produces a state of rightlessness for unhoused people over and over and over again. But then I will say that one of the reasons why I'm writing about that constitutionality here is because also something even more sinister is happening, which is that these those two um, landmark decisions um, in Jones versus New York and Martin versus Boise are about tying anti-camping enforcement to the availability of shelter. They don't simply say it is cruel and unusual punishment to ticket someone, arrest someone, jail someone for sleeping outside, period. They say it's cruel and unusual to do that if there isn't another place for people to go. So what cities have done is rather than <laughs> rather than accept the injunction against their violation of human rights they have they have dis they have expanded the shelter system 
They have invested an immense amount, immense amount of resources and time in providing those quote unquote alternatives. Of course, those all, as we know of especially congregate shelters, these are some of the worst places on earth. Um, they are known for noxious living conditions. There's no privacy. They're um, really famous for not only COVID, but tuberculosis outbreaks. Um, and city, like cities have invested in the shelter system as a way of legalizing enforcement. Um, and so that is the, um, that is kind of the legal environment that I'm pointing to here. And um, it, basically in order to say that that production of rightlessness is the point. You also point out that uh, though homelessness is as old as the country is, the interventions of Reagan's administration, since upheld by bipartisan consensus, at once cemented it as a feature of American life and shaped what the government is prepared to do about it. From 1981 to 1989, the housing and urban development budget was slashed by almost 80 percent, turning public and subsidized housing into the housing of last resort allocated not by eligibility, but by lottery. So tax cuts led to homelessness. Do you believe Americans are fine with that? If it means they pay less in taxes, they do not mind if other Americans are homeless? Well, I mean, it's funny to ask about Americans more generally, right? Because this is tax cuts for the incredibly wealthy. This is the removal of the top tax bracket you know, that used to be taxed like above 60 and is now taxed at something like 20 to 30. So I don't think that, you know, I think that there, you're right in that the right wing has successfully built an anti-tax coalition um, and without sort of recognizing, you know, and, and um, but I, I'm not sure how clear it is um, I, it is true that I'm not sure how clear it is to people the way that government policy itself contributes to the crisis of homelessness. Um, the other thing that I would point out is, as you write, throughout the 1980s and 90s, seeking a bulwark against the undeserving poor, policymakers ceded disciplinary requirements into public benefits, so all forms of welfare bloomed into workfare. Now aid recipients must jump through the paternalistic uh, hoops of monthly requalifications, mandatory drug testing, and more, while requirements for job training or sober living have diminished within interim housing, arbitrary restrictions and lock-ins persist, coercion remains inseparable from the state provision of a social need. That said, you know, the Reagan era was supposed to be about shrinking government interference in the everyday lives of Americans. How would you describe the difference in government interference in the daily lives of the rich as opposed to the poor under Reaganism? Is Reaganism small government for the wealthy, but big brother for the homeless? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting way to put it. I know that, you know, for instance, Ruth Wilson Gilmore has a really beautiful, like a really elegant understanding of you know the of what she calls the shadow state um and so the idea of a leaner state didn't actually produce less government what it produced is a less accountable government that is more um intricately involved with the nonprofit and private sector um so it 
I think that, you know, in, in the context of um, policies for the homeless, what I talk about as the homeless industrial complex is really the sort of shadow state mirror um, to the abandonment of of unhoused people by the federal government. And so what balloons is this kind of Baroque system of public-private partnerships of, um, you know, in Los Angeles, all of these interim housing locations are managed by nonprofits. They are funded through grants. They, um, there is a host of sort of complicated bureaucracy that goes into these stop gaps. Um, and so I, I would say that that, um, that that kind of shadow state, right, that is, you know, some people refer to as the nonprofit industrial complex is really the result of um, the withdrawal of the, of, of the withdrawal of like, you know, of this withdrawal of the state um, at its face and then in its, in its wake, in its shadow is the, you know, expansion of a state apparatus that simply, um, you know, uh, I'm sorry to use this metaphor, but like, like a human centipede, like enwraps all of these other um, projects within it. So just uh, one last question for you, uh, Tracy, and I just want sure. to point out that far more, uh, there's far more to this article on the steps that activists like Tracy and the L.A. Tenants Union are taking. So you must go and read this article, read more about what happened to the Echo Park Lake uh, encampment, as well as what is being done for the people in Los Angeles, what tiny incremental steps have been won, but how the bigger system is still a huge burden on the homeless. you got to check out Tracy's writing again, the New Republic article inside L.A.'s in homeless industrial complex. One last question for you, Tracy, and I promise we do this with all of our guests. Mm -hmm. Our final question is what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write, unhoused people's comfort is a moral hazard. If the state provided housing for all who needed it, permanent, unsurveilled, well-resourced public housing, it would undermine the capitalist dictate that you must work for a wage in order to pay for the basic human need of shelter. So, Tracy, how real is the threat effective to, uh, to, of effectively addressing homelessness to capitalism? Can ending homelessness end capitalism? I mean, I, I would, I mean, as a tenant organizer, right, and my definition of tenant is anyone who doesn't control their own housing, anyone who inhabits but doesn't own. And as a tenant organizer, that includes unhoused tenants, um, tenants who rent, uh, people, incarcerated people, they also don't control their own housing. Like as a tenant organizer, I absolutely without a doubt believe that to solve homelessness, to really solve the crisis of homelessness, to really solve the crisis of to really produce housing as a human right would is is one in the same as the struggle against capitalism when does your book abolish rent come out i think 2023 
Okay, I'm really looking forward to it. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Me too. Thank you, you so much. Your article inside LA's uh, Homeless Industrial Complex is just fascinating. People can follow Tracy on Twitter at the word two underscore evils and find out more about Tracy at tracyrosenthal.com. But uh, count on us bugging you next year when Abolish Rent comes out because we would love to have you back on the show. Please do. Thank you so much. All right. Take care, Tracy, and enjoy the rest of your week. You too. Thank you. This is not democracy now or ever. This is hell if what you just heard from Tracy Rosenthal and the brutal and inhumane treatment of the homeless in Los Angeles, which has a system that profits from such cruelty, a system likely very much like the homeless policy of whatever municipality you find yourself in right now, whether you know it or not. If that conversation was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which this week streams live on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. This podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell, where you can subscribe to our show on Patreon. Or you can show your support of completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Remember, we do not accept any grant money. We are not profitable enough to afford to be a not-for-profit. We don't take any commercial money whatsoever. We're not endorsed by any commercial entity. So all we got is you on Patreon this past week during our May 20th podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. I considered all the ways I tried to, well, and failed to, distract myself from my sick reality of hospitalization and recovery over the past couple of months, and it's not a pretty picture. Every time I tried to distract myself from the pain I was experiencing, I would inadvertently be confronted by the pain of our reality, the reality we all share, especially when we interact with the media and what amounts to something called the news, a news that distracts us all from the biggest problems we face every day. Did you know that whatever happens in Johnny Depp and Amber Heard's whatever name is life is the most important thing to all of us today? Yeah, it's not. So why is the media giving it so much attention? Well, because they're both part of the media. On Patreon, we've also been sharing interviews that, well, to be honest, I completely forgot happened. I didn't even remember that these existed. But if you are not a Patreon subscriber yet, over the last three weeks, we have played interviews from 2007 and 2008 that provide what is very much needed context, 15-year-old context of what is happening and has been happening in Ukraine over the past few months while I've been out sick. First, we played an interview with the former First Deputy Foreign Minister of Estonia, a nation that was very concerned about the potential for Russian expansion and the potential for Western provocation of that Russian expansion. Rain Mullerson, who was on in 2008 to talk about his OpenDemocracy.net article, The World After the Russia-Georgia War, Rain pointed out how back then the U.S. and the West had shifted from a policy of assimilating Russia into what it saw as a liberal democratic market state and aligning it with the Washington consensus to a Cold War-like containment policy toward Russia by expanding NATO to Georgia 
and eventually Ukraine, announcing plans to erect ballistic missile defenses close to Russia's borders and vying with Russia over the route of energy pipelines. So that was right when the Russia-Georgia war was ending. And then the next week, we uh, spoke with, we played an interview when we spoke with uh, historian Bruce Cummings, whose work focuses on Korea. Now, you might not understand what Korea has to do with Ukraine, but not only did Bruce give us the kind of historical context you rarely hear about North and South Korea, toward the end of that conversation, he mentioned the axis of evil trope the Bush administration had applied to North Korea, along with Iraq and Iran, despite the fact that the three countries never had any alliance of any sort, and especially nothing comparable to the World War II axis of Germany and Japan, which actually had trade agreements. And don't forget that the term axis of evil was a creation of David Frum, who was a Bush administration speechwriter and is now a contributor to that far right-wing news outlet, MSNBC. It was Bush's axis of evil rhetoric, written by from, again, the MSNBC contributor now, and Bush, remember, he's getting a 61% approval rating from Democrats. It was that axis of evil rhetoric that led to the missile defense that at the time was so provocative to Russia. As Bruce mentioned, any conversation in North Korea or any other country comes to a dead end once the evil is that evil is used because logic and rationality are out of the picture, as we have seen the evil label being used lately against other world leaders. Then last week, we played an interview from 2007 in the beginning of the Russia-Georgia War with Paul Rogers, a professor of peace studies at Bradford University in Northern England. Paul also wrote about the missile defense system the Bush administration was planning for Eastern and Central Europe and its impact on Putin's power within Russia, which at the time was waning. Putin was actually losing power, and there was a potential for him no longer staying in office. Paul explained how such a provocative action by the U.S. would reinforce Putin's view that the West was a threat to Russian security and rally support around him just as Putin was becoming increasingly unpopular, which is what happened. Putin would actually, as Paul and Rain predicted, use the missiles for his own political advantage. I know, I was kind of blown away too. Who knew that 15 years ago, our guests were already predicting a confrontation with Russia over Ukraine. To hear all of that from our media's disturbing distractions to 15-year-old contract or contacts for the Ukraine-Russia war, subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell, where you will not only get immediate access to around 200 past Patreon shows, but you also get a special code word that gives all of our Patreon patrons discounts on all of our merchandise that you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is what new pandemic is distracting you from the ongoing pandemic? Oh, but the new pandemic sounds so much more fresh than the old pandemic. I'm getting, kind of getting bored with the old pandemic. Be a good band name. <laughs> new pandemic. <Yeah. laughs> I think they should be on wax tracks, right? Yeah, exactly. All right. Adam A. says, dude, 
The latest monkeypox outbreak started at a European rave. Monkeypox. How has COVID not completely eliminated ravers? <laughs> That's a good point. David R. says apathy. <laughs> Pandemic of apathy. Another good name for a band. Yeah, knocking them out of the park. <laughs> Mark A. says donkeypox. <laughs> Nicholas E. says the human virus. Mm. A little misanthropic. Yeah. Chris C., Continues that theme by saying the raging contagion of stupidity. And that's getting thumbs up <laughs> yeah. from our cheery listeners. <laughs> Warren L. says pandemic of ignorance. But what else is new? Mm-hmm. And gives a link to a cool article. Essel S. says COVID distracting from capitalism, maybe? Okay. Pete V. comes out swinging with your mom. <laughs> God. And finally... Our own Ronaldo M. says vocal fry. <laughs> that is a pandemic. Vocal fry. <laughs> That's about it. Uh, if you really hate vocal fry, I strongly suggest you stay away from the Drew Barrymore show because I think that's all oh, basically what that show is. Yeah, it's weird to see her just coming over on the air television. <laughs> it's very disturbing. Very disturbing. It's time for, and that is the most disturbing. Actually, there's several of those shows. Uh, what is it? The oh, I can't even remember the other people. Tamron. There's a new show called Tamron. Uh, Kelly Clarkson show. Is that right? Oh, they're really brutal. They're like QVC shows, except they're on regular <laughs> network. It's the most bizarre yeah. and disturbing stuff. I can't get through a minute. I try to watch just because I'm so disturbed. It's like a you know Andy Warhol's traffic accident <laughs> photos. You know. Yeah. I, I, I kind of want and I. I can't make it through more than 90 seconds without wanting to kill myself. It's so weird, all these people succeeding. You look away for a second, and then they're crazy <laughs> flicks raising to the top. <laughs> exactly. It's disturbing. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in rotten history on May 25th, 1928, 94 years ago Wednesday, the Italian engineer and explorer General Umberto Nobile ran into trouble in the Arctic and... To be honest, who hasn't? Nobile had convinced the Italian fascist government to finance the use of a semi-rigid hydrogen-filled dirigible to map unexplored areas of the far north, including the most extreme regions of Russia and Canada. And as this is rotten history, I do not have high hopes for the sustainability of that dirigible. After Nobile's plan to explore the far north with his blimp. He planned to take the airship all the way to the North Pole. Nobile had already had some success in an earlier Arctic expedition with a dirigible called the Norge, and his new airship, the Italia, was built to almost the same design. Some experts and colleagues had warned Nobile that his new dirigible might not withstand the harsh conditions of the frigid north, but Nobile was undaunted, and if you are the subject of rotten history, you should probably have been a little bit more, I don't know, daunted. Launching from the Norwegian island of Svalbard, also known as Spitsbergen, for those of you who may know it by a different name, with a crew of 16, Nobile made two successful flights that gathered valuable scientific data from the Russian Arctic islands. So maybe things won't go as rotten as I thought. But on the third flight, uh uh-oh, 
Weather conditions would not allow a landing on the North Pole, so instead the Italia flew over the pole and dropped a package containing, among other things, an Italian flag and a wooden cross blessed by Pope Pius XI. So essentially, Nobile just decided to litter. While crossing the frozen sea on the return flight to Svalbard, a.k.a. Spitsbergen, Nobile and his crew encountered vicious headwinds. The dirigible began to lose altitude as chunks of ice flew off its propellers and tore holes in its gas-filled envelope. Six crew members climbed up into the envelope to repair the holes, and they were still in there when the Italia hit the ice just 19 miles north of Svalbard. The crash tore cables and rigging, detaching the gondola and leaving it in a wreck on the ice as the buoyant gas bag, now free of the gondola's weights, floated off into the sky with six helpless crew members trapped inside. An international search effort made headlines around the world, but with Nobile and some other survivors were finally located on the ice and rescued, the men who floated away inside the giant gas envelope they were never found. After being vilified as a failure by Mussolini and the fascists, no kidding, hmm, who knew? Nobile worked for four years in the Soviet Union, then spent three years teaching at Lewis University in Romeoville, Illinois, outside Chicago. And after Italy surrendered to the Allies in World War II, he returned to his home country and joined the Italian Communist Party. He died in 1978. So that had some twists I did not expect, and you gotta wonder, what was Nobile doing in the Soviet Union after the Italia disaster? What did he teach at Lewis University? And was he a communist all along? I have no idea. All I know is that's rotten history and this is hell. Dan, do you have any idea of who our next guest this week will be? Yeah, you bet. Uh, tomorrow we're going to have anthropologist Dominic Boyer, who wrote the Nemo magazine article, Why We Have to Give Up on Endless Economic Growth. And we'll also have... An all-new Moment of Truth with Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff incubates live on the air. Who gross. Right? That's disgusting. It's pretty nasty. That's I know. what you told me to say. I'm so glad that we have an incubator here. Yeah. I really want to thank all of our listeners for that incubator fun drive that we did. You can find out more about Dominic at DominicBoyer.org, and you can follow Dominic on Twitter at DominicBoyer. Also, he was supposed to be our guest on March 7th when I had to cancel the show because I had an emergency appointment at the doctor's office due to what ended up being a condition that needed emergency surgery so we've rebooked Dominic because that article really blew me away at the time and it's a conversation I've been wanting to have about how we're all so inundated with the propaganda of capitalism with the propaganda of prioritizing uh, profits over pe people so definitely tune in for that. You can email us at chuck at thisishell.com, direct message us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishell. Shortly after making my first appearance back on the show following my hospitalization and surgery, this is back in early April when all I did was come on the air to tell people, give people a little bit of a health update. 
Francesco T. got in contact with us. Now, Francesco is a listener. He's been a listener for a while. He is of Italian descent. He spent a lot of his life in Italy. He moved to the United States and was a cook, if I remember right, in Portland, Oregon, decided he'd had enough of the U.S. and went back to Italy. But on his drive back from Portland, Oregon, to his folks' place, if I remember right, in Pennsylvania, he went out of his way to come here to Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, to join us for This Is Hell office hours. This is, has to be like six or seven years ago now. But a listener who is going to Italy, fleeing the United States, fleeing Portland, Oregon, actually drove out of their way to come here for This Is Hell office hours. And it's something I'll never forget. So thank you, Francesco. So Francesco writes, it's an amazing power that you have. Dear Chuck, to hear your voice back on the air, despite all the pain and difficulty, was an affirmation that life, like beauty, persists, resists, and insists no matter what, even in hell. I'm sending all that I can in terms of good vibes and prayers and all those things. But what is more solidly real, perhaps, is the depths of gratitude that I have for you for how gloriously and generously you battle against ignorance, indifference, or even the death cult psychopathy that seems to guide society at this time. Damn, I wish we were neighbors. I would love to help however possible. I'm trying to open up a small radical bar here in Italy. You will always have the best seat in the house waiting for you over here in Italy. Meanwhile and beyond, the biggest hugs. Take care. And you got this, Francesco. Thanks, Francesco, for the always inspiring words. As for our situation here, as for confronting what Francesco calls the death cult psychopathy that seems to guide society at this time, I look forward to doing so at Francesco's small radical bar in Italy someday. And Francesco, I would be honored to be your neighbor, but for now... We'll have to settle for being virtual neighbors here on the show, like I am with all of our listeners. And one more email before we go. This one is from John C. John writes, uh, I'm glad you are on the men, Chuck. I wanted to write something more profound, but I guess that isn't my strong suit. I really missed the show, but more missed hearing your daily and Patreon monologues since the pandemic began. This is how really was the best at informing people about our new world. All my best, and I hope for a speedy recovery for you. John, thank you for the kind words, John, and all our listeners. Don't worry about being profound, because even when you don't think you are being profound, like John, you actually are, because it's pretty intense when we hear from people all over the world who believe we are good at, let alone the best at, informing people about our new world. So thanks, John. And we look forward to seeing all of you at the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party featuring the This Is Art Art Show, as well as live music, food, and a raffle Saturday, September 17th, the final Saturday of summer, during summer's final weekend, with doors opening at 3 in the afternoon. I know we haven't even started summer yet, and we're already telling you about what's happening on the last weekend of summer, but we have so many listeners who are contacting us asking if we have yet again rescheduled the This Is Hell party, which we've had to reschedule for the past couple of years due to the pandemic. 
So that's the This Is Hell 26th anniversary. That's pretty crazy. This Is Hell 26th anniversary and listener appreciation party and the closing of the This Is Art Art Show, again with food, music, a raffle, all beginning at 3 p.m. That's right, it will be the closing of This Is Art. The opening will be on Saturday, July 23rd, also at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, and again at 3 p.m. During Carrie's 50th, 50th anniversary party, their own anniversary party. So July 23rd, now that was the original date of our party. We even confirmed uh, curators for that date to do the This Is Art show, but because of my recent hospitalization, my upcoming medical procedures, and ongoing recuperation from all of that, we had to move the date of our party to September 17th. So if you want to be here for uh, Carrie's Lounge celebrating 50 years in business, join us with the This Is Art show on Saturday, July 23rd, again at Carrie's Lounge. Our annual or our anniversary party will be happening on September 17th, and that will be the closing of This Is Art. And we all know that closing parties are far more fun than opening parties because openings at uh, art shows, uh, uh, openings at galleries, they're always people are fraught with nerves and concerns over if their art will be accepted, if people will show up at the closing. They're just getting drunk. So it's a lot more enjoyable during the closing. If you are an artist or know an artist or would like to suggest an artist who work you appreciate, email me at chuck at thisishell.com and send a sample of the art or tell us how to find it online. And we have been receiving exceptional suggestions and entries for possibly being in the This Is Art Art Show. This is a great opportunity for working artists as we do not take any commission from any sale of your art. I know a lot of galleries take 40 to 60% as a commission. We take absolutely 0% as a commission. If you are interested or have a suggestion for an artist, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Send your art or your suggestion as soon as possible. As the opening again of This Is Art happens Saturday, July 23rd, it carries Lounge's 50th year in business celebration. As this is a listener appreciation party, we also want your suggestions for musicians or musical acts to perform. So you can also send your musical suggestion to chuck at thisishell.com. And I'm told that we pay better, far better than you would think, and probably far more than we should. Finally, if you have something you would like to donate as a prize for our raffle, again, email me at chuck at thisishell.com or just send whatever you want to us at thisishell2251 West Devon Avenue, 2nd Floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. That's This Is Hell 2251 West Devon Avenue, 2nd Floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And we've actually been receiving a lot of art lately, including, as I've mentioned on the show before, a really disturbing and beautiful book called E is for erotica that I'll be showing Dan and giving him a copy after today's show. Uh, it is something to be seen. Thanks to our guest organizer and author Tracy Rosenthal, who wrote the New Republic article Inside LA's Homeless Industrial Complex, 
Tracy, again, is a co-founder of the L.A. Tenants Union. You can find out more about that organization at latenantsunion.org. Follow them on Twitter at L.A. Tenants Union. Tracy's first book, Abolish Rent, will be coming out next year from Verso, and we will definitely have her back on the show to discuss that. Follow Tracy on Twitter at the word two underscore evils. That's plural, evils. Find out more about Tracy at tracyrosenthal.com. Thanks to Dan Hill for producing. Thanks, Dan. Anything you want to add before we go? No, let's sign off. All right. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more Interview Hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>